You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And Tracy, we are recording this after the uh, the launch of the Mando season, whatever we're on now, three? Three, yeah. Or what with that season 2.5 or something? Right. I don't know. Yeah, it's complicated. So, so it's even better to use Grogu now than it was a couple weeks ago. Uh, yeah, I, I, I surprised thing. no one, I'm sure, in saying uh, that I haven't watched any of it yet. But in my defense, <laughs> we're looking to accumulate a a set of episodes because we're probably going to do a family watch on it. And usually when we nice. do those, we do two at a time. Um, so it kind of helps pace things out. I, I, I got a little pissy online mm-hmm. uh, no. because someone commented, and you should never read the comments, but someone commented on a post that I had done and – they kind of slammed Star Wars fandom and slammed MCU fandom at the same time with one breath. And I was like, no. Not in my house. <laughs> so I got, I, got, I got a little pissy with them. Because I, I get it. If you, don't wanna, if you don't want to, like if you're, if you're having fatigue with either one of those fandoms, you don't want to watch everything, that's fine. You, but you don't mm-hmm. complain about it to, on like other people. Like don't, yeah. don't take my post and make it about you complaining about all this stuff. Sure. It's like I'm enjoying it. Shut the fuck up and get away. Yeah, the great law of nerddom when it comes to yucking someone else's yum is first, don't. Um, and second, like if you, if you just really can't, just remove yourself from the space like it's fine (laughs) there's plenty of things that people are super into and nerd dumb that just have never landed for me um but there's oh 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 reading a new book reading a new book um (laughs) though so it's landing with me and uh the timing of it is fabulous because we have said books author here with us uh this is sb divya and uh the book in question is meru um and so how are you divya I'm doing really well. Thank you. All the right. The book, uh, book yeah. came out, what, a little over a month ago now? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I've been really happy with how people are receiving it. So actually, as we're talking right now, I'm looking over your shoulder because we do have video these days because we're very fancy people. And if I remember correctly, you've had some art made for some of your characters there. And that is must be Jaya that I'm looking at over your shoulder and just off screen to my right, your left would would be um, would be Vaha. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, I had uh, I commissioned a digital artist to do uh, portraits of the two main characters, just for fun and gratification. And um, I'm giving away some signed copies right now. So if people find me on social media and post a picture of the book, I will happily mail them an art card. Nice. That's awesome. That is super cool. They did a beautiful job. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way they turned out. And Vaha was was a bit more of a challenge just because the concept of alloy doesn't really exist, um, seeing as I invented it. So we had to go a few rounds before <laughs> right. um, my vision and the artist's creation kind of overlapped. Yeah. Okay, so this this is the perfect space for us to kind of jump in here because in classic SB Divya style. Um, we have, okay, so I'm a, I'm a backup a little bit. Uh, when I teach my speculative fiction classes, one of the things that my students always love talking about is world building, because who doesn't love the idea of making, making a space which does not exist or does not exist yet or whatever. Um, and I tend to talk to them about the sort of one by theory that there's like, you should really have one central idea. This is the main thing that, that most of the stuff that makes my world weird or different descends out of this 
set of conditions. And the thing that I have always admired about your work, Divya, is you can get a hell of a lot of difference out of your one buy. Like you, you managed to transform a lot of things that are well beyond what I would expect to have seen transformed just from looking really carefully at a core set of conditions, you know, being different or manifesting in a certain way. And one of the things that we get um, in Meru is the alloy. So, okay, let's situate people here. When we're talking about alloy and when we're talking about um, of this book, what are, what's the conditions on the ground? All right. So the basic idea behind this book is it's set about a thousand years in our future. And in that interval, humanity has managed to terribly screw up the Earth and uh, also made a mess of trying to terraform Mars. And so they kind of chastised themselves via genetic engineering, changed human nature, and along the way also created post-human descendants of ours who live alongside humanity. And these post-humans are genetically engineered to be able to live in the vacuum of space. So they don't need spaceships. They don't need space stations. Um, Some of them are the spaceships. They have very large bodies, very small bodies, runs the gamut. And the idea being that in space, you can't screw anything up the way you can with a planet, um, with other animals, with plant life, all of that. And all of this I built out of uh, a little branch of philosophy known as panpsychism. And panpsychism is the idea that everything in the universe has consciousness, that consciousness is a fundamental, natural um, property that uh, is similar to something like gravity or electromagnetism. And what we think of as human consciousness is really just uh, an emergent complexity that arises out of all the molecules in our bodies having a little bit of consciousness. And I just thought that was a really, really cool idea. And I was like, well, what if that's true? You know, how does that change the way we decide to interact with our environment and how does that affect our responsibility towards everything in the universe as we go out and explore the solar system and beyond. So that's, that's a lot, but that kind of encapsulates, you know, (laughs) where I started with the world building and how, you know, there's a lot you can go from, from that groundwork. (laughs) That's, I mean, you're not lying when you say that that's a lot, but you know, now that I am, you know, full disclosure here, I'm only like a quarter of the way into the book. So I have a lot more, um, to do to familiarize myself with like the full implications of, you know, how a, a world with fully realized panpsychism as um, kind of philosophy of, of life looks. But one of the things that for me, the kind of the idea that it would take something like us believing that any type of life form has the seeds of even if an unsophisticated sort of incipient consciousness within it that the idea that it would take that to make us as a human species reevaluate our relationship to the world around us, that absent that, absent being 
sort of told and confirmed that like, no, what you are doing to the environment around you, to the other living things in it has an impact, not just in the sense of, oh, poor tree, but in the sense of there is something that is aware of what is happening to it. Um, and that has to the extent that, that its physicality allows it some kind of agency. The idea that it takes that for us to go, oh, oh dear. Um, and to reevaluate our behaviors is, on the one hand, both hopeful that it's possible for us to kind of think differently about our world, but also a little sad because it raises the bar kind of high for us. Um, if we think about this in terms of our current world, like, are we ever going to kind of um, catch up to uh, the possibility of, of owing the world better than we do? Yeah, I think for me, a lot of it is rooted in religion mm. um, uh, and the the philosophies that underpin, you know, most of the world's religions, right? Um, we have, especially for indigenous people, there are a lot of animistic religions. Um, there are people who think even non-living things are imbued with spirit. And panpsychism does encompass non-living things too. It's, you know, it's literally every atom, mm -hmm. um, every particle in the universe, right? Just, just like any other property of physics. And so I think a lot of the, the modern religions have embraced human exceptionalism mm -hmm. and that the universe was created for us and for us to do with as we please. And so moving away from that mindset um, maybe, you know, if we kind of bring back some of the old ways we could get there, but I don't see that happening without major upheaval, which is why I had to, you know, destroy a couple of planets, um, along Oops. the way in the story. Cause yeah. I think we are creatures of habit. We're very resistant to change. And so in order for us to embrace something this radical, um, there needs to have happened something that forces us to go there. So one of the things that I, when I talk to authors about their work, I sometimes try to relate their work and their ideas to other things that I've read um, or things that, that, you know, have kind of moved them in this direction. And you've already kind of talked about panpsychism and how that became a seed for you in growing some of the larger implications of your world and, and people's, um, how it actually functions and how people understand it to function. But I'm wondering, you know, especially because we are in a realm where there's more hopeful SF being written, there's more climate aware and ecologically aware SF being written. If there are particular things that you found yourself reading and being inspired by just in the community of writers that, that we're part of here. Oh, like in terms of other books and fiction? Yeah. I mean, things that, that, you know, there's not a through line where it's like, oh, yes, I did this because I saw this over here. But in the sense of other people's writing that opened you up to, you know, experimenting and, and imagining as as uh, as bigly as you have. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say this book is more, I think, a reaction to certain science fictional tropes, especially when it comes to space exploration. Um, it is in conversation with things like the prime directive mm. for Star Trek, right? The idea that we don't interfere with um, 
early stage or earlier stage civilizations. And, you know, on the flip side, the idea that we should just rampantly go out and colonize everything we can find as long as we can set foot on it, right? And I think I wanted to take the prime directive idea and actually carry it even further, you know? Why why stop at advanced alien, I shouldn't say advanced, at, why stop at intelligent life forms that we can recognize as being self-aware? And why not go further and say we shouldn't even touch any planet, right? Like what gives us the right to go and take those resources? Um, life could be forming at uh, a cellular level, or maybe there isn't any life on there, but does that still give us the right to go and, and um, tear it apart for minerals and for mm-hmm. uh, furthering our expansion? Because that's ultimately the goal, right? We just kind of leapfrog, and we've been doing that already on the Earth. Um, Annalie Newitz has a book out. It came out a day before mine called The Terraformers, and they cover some very, very similar sorts of themes as Meru does. And we were we were chatting about our books and our ideas. And I was talking about Manifest Destiny. And, you know, and they were kind of commenting on capitalism and, and this idea that we always need growth, right? That mm-hmm. we are this, we are sort of locus where we're just going to consume and keep going. And I'm finding that, you know, science fiction of the previous century especially encouraged that, right, and Mm -hmm. embraced it as a positive. And I wrote this book in part for people to rethink the assumption that that's the only way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I believe it's in the the secret constitution, that the one that the Congress and Senate use, that we're just allowed (laughs) to do whatever we want. (laughs) Oh, okay. I didn't (laughs) Is that part of the um, part of the national treasure universe? There, Pro- probably. I mean, I mean, yeah. if if any of the three of us uh, spent all our money and then went into debt, we couldn't just magically change our debt limit mm-hmm. to whatever we wanted it to be, so we could spend more yeah, money. Okay, yeah. So that's yeah, what I'm I mean, saying. It's in it's in the secret constitution, the one that we're not sure. allowed to read. Right. I, I think that you. You have a point there, Patrick, that to some extent, like the rules that we've made up, whether it's about governance or settlement or how we practice science or so on, sometimes have been written and rewritten with expedience in mind more than with kind of like a core ethic in mind. Yeah, or or even with um, eminent domain in mind. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. So <clears throat> you need you need this resource, and you can't have that resource because of. Someone else owns the land and and they're protecting it or whatever. You can use eminent domain to take the land away from them and they're going to get the resource. Yeah, yeah, that idea of the argument of like, well, we we we've decided we need it and that we yeah. we need it in a way that's that's bigger and more important than the way that you need it. I mean, uh, if you look at our country, uh, just at, at the USA in general, like you can own the land and not own the mineral rights, not own the water rights, not mm-hmm. own the other stuff. Like you can, you can have uh, land, you can build a house, you can do all stuff, but someone else has already got those rights. <laughs> so the resources are going somewhere else. And we were, we were kind of talking a little bit in the beginning uh, 
just a little about California and the, the atmospheric rivers and the flooding and all the stuff that's happening in California right now. And I joked about LA not, and I've, I've made this joke at least a hundred times on the podcast out of, you know, almost 600 episodes, but you know, growing up in Fresno, we had canals and the canals basically took the water to LA. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's like that, that's where all the water goes. LA needs so much water that most of it goes to, you know, goes to LA, but they don't have necessarily reservoirs and, and places to keep the water. So a lot of runoff and stuff just goes into the ocean. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't have the infrastructure. And, and so that's a great example of us not really taking care of stuff. Right. And, and so when, when California needs resources, when they need water, they go to other states. So they, they own the water that flows through Colorado. They own water that flows through all these other states that surround them. Like they have those, those ownership rights. So to the whole point of what we're talking about, it, that's kind of our culture. When we need something, we just go out and take it from wherever mm-hmm. we need it. That's what happens. There are a lot of people on this planet who have absolutely no problem with might makes right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they, they tend to embrace it. And, and again, that's where I had to really kind of step back and say, is it even possible to change that? Cause it's such a fundamental aspect of not just human nature, but you know, mammalian nature in general. Right. And so, um, the, really the only way I could think I, I don't have enough faith in humanity to just <laughs> casually change our behavior. Cause we think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, there has to be a catalyst. There has to be a catalyst in any way, you know, you're not going to convince all 7 billion people of the same right thing to do, um, without changing our biology. And so that's where I kind of came back to genetic engineering and you know it's a it's a really tricky subject and it's very sensitive right now because sure. we are obviously on the cusp I think of it exploding in terms of our capacity to tinker with DNA and the specter of eugenics is still you know very much haunting a lot of us And I had to address that, too, because you can't really have a conversation about genetically engineering human beings or even our post-human descendants, I think, without talking about super beings and the concept of, you know, do we need to make ourselves better and what does better look like? And and the way I ended up tackling that was um, regulation, you know, the way the way we have things like the FDA, we certainly could have other bodies in the future that are regulating and setting rules for how to responsibly conduct genetic engineering, including um, explicitly introducing chance mutations, right, Mm -hmm. in order to maintain diversity and then supporting the outcomes of those mutations as necessary, which means embracing disability, providing social supports for people who are ill, right? All of that kind of comes along and it's 
it's one big package to figure out a way to do this responsibly. Mm-hmm. Well, well like, the, the other really old joke that I've used forever in the podcasting is that I plan to live forever through immoral and unethical genetic experimentation. So I, for one, can't wait for that to get here. Uh, <laughs> So I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm excited. Like, just, just give me Wolverine's healing power. That's all I need. Right. That's all I need. Just the healing factor. That's it. What could but, go wrong? but have you thought about your brain? <laughs> uh, no, because my brain and I argue all the time. So I try not to think about it that much. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I feel like we're going to potentially solve the aging of the body in various ways, including, you know, replacing our organs with lab cultured um, versions, you know, cloned from our own cells, right? But the aging of the brain is so much harder just because of the way the brain works. You can't just regenerate a fresh new brain and stick it in your head because a lot of what makes you you would then be gone at that point. And so even in terms of preserving the brain and the way human memories work, the way learning and plasticity works, makes the concept of aging uh, really, really tricky, I think, from a neuroscience perspective. Isn't, isn't that why we do crossword puzzles? And Sudoku and, and, yeah, Sudoku, yeah. and, and all those apps puzzles, that, yeah. Yeah, that promise to keep your mind younger. <laughs> <laughs> the world united around Wordle. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I stopped using that after whoever bought it bought it. New York Times. New York Times. New York Times. Yeah. yeah I st- yeah. I still play uh, Quartal, the the four Wordle version. I don't right. know that anyone's bought that one. Yeah, I think that's just one of those app store guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone somewhere. So I mean, going to this idea of this ethos that you were talking about of embracing. Uh, genetic engineering and genetic uh, therapy, not as a pathway towards sort of the ubermensch and perfecting humanity, but as a pathway towards uh, diversifying humanity and allowing it to, allowing to sort of, um, I don't know what the best way to frame it is, but sort of identifying the opportunities to sort of customize while at the same time recognizing that there is a need for uncertainty. There's a need for, for the unplanned you lean really hard into that ethos through Jayanti, the main character, who is designed by her parents, but ultimately one of the manifestations of randomness within her design is that she has sickle cell anemia. And having been given the opportunity to, uh, through therapy, effectively mitigate that and end that condition, she's actually chosen not to um, and sort of embrace that ethos of um, – that the presence of this uh, chronic disease and this disability for her is actually of value intrinsically, uh, that, it, right. that it contributes to kind of the diversity of the larger genetic code surrounding her. And on the one hand, I think that's a, that's a really radical way of kind of owning the discourse of saying that, no, people don't have to be perfect to have value, and I will, I will live that by putting that in the life of my character. Um, but of course, also it it relates in some sense to some changes that you've had to endure. You know, in the afterward mm-hmm. for your book, you talk really directly about having had to cope for the last eighteen months or so with long COVID. Um, in fact, it's been longer than that now. It's been more like two years. Two years, yep. Yeah, um, and how that 
has probably played a role in from the drafting stage through the revising stage and sort of meeting Jaya again as a character now through the lens of someone who has more a much more personal understanding of what it means to live with with chronic ailment. Um, I wonder if that's something that you can kind of unpack a little bit for us. Yeah, it's interesting. When when I drafted this book, it was the summer of 2020, and we were in the thick of pandemic shutdown, everything else. Um, and at that point, I had lived for nearly two years with chronic migraine, which had a lot of impacts on my lifestyle, and I had to make adaptations. Um, and then in January of 2021, I got sick with COVID and a few months later, um, developed long COVID symptoms that are still with me. Um, and at this point are, uh, diagnosed as ME-CFS. And so during the revision stage of the book, which happened, you know, after I got sick, I very much had an even greater appreciation, let's say, for Jayanthi's sickle cell. Um, I also consulted with someone um, that I met through Instagram, a bookstagrammer actually, who had posted some stuff about machinehood when it came out. Um, and she has sickle cell. And, I, you know, one thing I've come to realize is chronic illness um, and chronic pain have commonalities, but still each disease has its own manifestations. And even within that, each individual body, right, responds differently. And so I think it's always good to get multiple perspectives, right? I didn't want to just take my experience and assume that's universal. Um, but one of I guess there, there were two, two reasons I decided to take this particular route with this main character. One was, as you say, to really push to the forefront this idea of embracing genetic diversity and its consequences. The other is that perfection is very much in the eye of the beholder, right? And even that particular phrase um, is ableist, you know. Um, sickle cell disease, as I was researching it, turns out to have protective effects against malaria, which is why you tend to find it mostly in populations that live uh, in the tropics. So there's there's kind of there's two versions of sickle cell. There's you know sickle cell trait if you get it from one parent and sickle cell disease if you get it from two parents, and it gets even more complex than that, but. Sickle cell trait alone, uh, those people can basically uh, be almost immune to malaria in a way without having the debilitating effects of the full-blown disease. And that's where I think things get really interesting because when we start assuming we understand what perfection is genetically and what genes ought to be eliminated from the gene pool, I think we end we enter very dangerous territory because there could come a day, there could come an environmental circumstance where those genes would have helped us if we still had access to them in the gene pool. And so that's where, you know, explicitly maintaining diversity is a strength, um, even though it comes with these potential negative consequences at the individual level 
uh, as a species, I think it behooves us to remember that we don't have all the answers and what's perfect in one part of the world today is perhaps imperfect in another part of the world today or tomorrow. <sighs> this is a very <laughs> episode. We're doing big things on, on this episode. Yeah, I, I make no apologies for my books being very, very thinky. <laughs> Much thinky, such, such wow. But I, I mean, let's to spin this in a in a personal way, in a different way, though. The alloy people of your book have been designed to do extraordinary things, to live in, in extraordinary circumstances. And to some extent, their extraordinariness gives them access to things that human beings don't have access to um, in, in your world. Specifically, getting back to the title, Meru itself, um, a new co- potentially colonizable world that there's some division about whether or not humanity should be permitted access to. Um, and so there's no doubt that like being an alloy is something beyond human, but is also at the same time, they're, they're, they are still persons. I wonder like if you could become an alloy, if that is a, is a future you could imagine, would you like, is that, is that something you feel connected to? Yes. hundred percent. Um, mm-hmm. you know, as, as with Patrick, I'm like, tinker me away. Right. Uh, this, this this mortal coil yeah. <laughs> can shuffle off <laughs> and I will happily invent, uh, inhabit a different one. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun with the, with the alloys. So posthumanism is something I'm conflicted about, especially because as an offshoot of transhumanism, it has again been co-opted by certain elements who are looking at this, this superhuman um, future for us, right? But I would prefer to think of post-humans as really humanity 2.0, not necessarily humanity plus plus, um, in the sense of what else can we be as persons, right? Uh, This this ties back a little bit to some of the themes in machinehood too. You know, what, what even is a person, Um, and how much does the body we inhabit define who we are as a person and the alloys are kind of, you know, let's take the concept of the Android, right. Of a completely artificial being who is a person and the concept of a cyborg, which is a human body with machine parts simply appended to it. And take it even a step further and say, what if we integrate all of that and actually make it inheritable via DNA? So we combine some of the design elements of machines, um, but incorporate that into biology. Because why not? Um, There are fascinating creatures on the earth. Like there's this, there's this sea snail that lives um, near thermal vents that are very, very hot. And on the outside of its body, it has tiny overlapping iron scales. And that's how it survives, the heat. And I was like, that's pretty cool. So if the sea (laughs) snail can do it, 
you know, why can't we someday, right? Um, and people talk a lot about chimeras and they have a lot of fun with it in a lot of science fiction, right? Where it's like, well, could I could I get myself uh, a bushy tail or some fox ears or, you know, uh, whiskers, whatever, right? And And I tried to actually take that a little bit more seriously and say, you know, what what could we do uh, in ways that would be interesting and useful? And I would absolutely 100% embrace that for myself because I think it'd be super fun. And the alloy pilots especially, I have always wanted to fly. Lots of people have (laughs) wanted to fly, but my daughter and I – I won't say we'll play a game, but she'll she'll ask me sometimes because we watch a lot of anime and especially like the shonen stuff where people get various powers, right? So she she would ask me, you know, if I could have any superpower I wanted, what would it be? And um, most days it's flying. I would like to be able to fly. And so having a post-human character like Vaha, who's a pilot who can fly around in her own body, I'm like, yeah, that would be a fun life. You know, it's, it's, you, you talked uh, about what's perfect here and, and isn't what's perfect there and that kind of stuff. The, the other thing that tends to be a trend now is that you, the fear of this, right? The fear mm-hmm. of, of, so you go all the way back to Star Trek, right? The, the whole Federation was founded and has laws against genetic manipulation. And I think we talked about that before, right? With Khan and the eugenics war and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so you have someone like Dr. Bashir in Deep Space Nine, who is essentially secret. He's a, he's he was secretly manipulated genetically, and uh, you know broke the law. His parents broke the law. Uh, you, you fast forward to Picard, and in in Picard, they outlawed synthetic life, right? So the, you can't you can't have androids. You can't have more datas, stuff like that. Uh, you look at comics and, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strong theme throughout Marvel and DC that it, people are afraid of, of the heroes and the people who have the powers. They're afraid of the mutants. They're afraid of, in the, in the Ultimates, they're afraid of, of Captain America and, and Iron Man and all of them. That's what, that's what causes civil war that eventually happens in the movies as well. You have, in DC... Uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why they have Suicide Squad <laughs> is and then you have Batman who who has a plan to eliminate every hero on Earth if they ever go bad. Right. So he, he keeps these plans and these these detailed uh, uh, dossiers. So there's always the fear. And I think that's what ultimately is going to hold us back. Is mm-hmm. is that fear seems to be something that we all attach to. Hell, look at the boys. My God. <laughs> You know that there, there's your there's your ultimate power uh, corrupts ultimately kind of storyline, right? Where where you have these super powered individuals who just do whatever the hell they want, whenever they want, and they get away with it because who can stop them? And and so it's like that. That's I think that is where a lot of the the fear of this stuff comes from in our society and you know across the globe. I don't know if you guys. Yeah, that, Tracy yeah, Tracy has thinky yeah. face. She's like thinking. <laughs> I, I was going to say that takes us back to uh, might makes right. And I think that's why we have that fear, right? Is, yeah. Um, we, we still 
very much as a society, we still make war. We still think that that's the only way to enforce anything is that you have to be able to physically put down the other person. And, uh, and I think it is an interesting question, again, that the only way I could get around that was, you know, was this catastrophe where where yeah, the catalyst. remaining humans are just like, you know what? Mm-hmm. Take away our, our <laughs> ability to commit violence, right? Because this mm-hmm. is not a good thing. And we see that, you know, with animals that are prey versus um, predatorial, right? Not all creatures on Earth rule by violence. Many of them do, but not all. So there's definitely a different way to be a living person. Um, And the question is, can we get there? Yeah. I I think related to that, too, I'm going in a different direction than the Mike Ricks, right? Because you've you've covered all the bases. That's completely articulated. Um, But I think also part of the fear there, you know, is is not always about the fear of the power other people have when we in speculative fiction spaces imagine wildly different seeming persons of, of whether they're aliens or they're genetically manipulated or they're, you know, through, through evolution, they've become very different than us. I think there is generally an urge towards the normative that people have. And I think as individual people, we have it in different spheres and in different degrees, and we apply it to different things, right? But broadly speaking, human beings have an urge towards establishing something that's normative and saying, cool, okay, there's this box here, right? Let's everybody get in the box, and now we're cool, and that's how things are going to be. And I think the fear of things that a misplaced fear of things that aren't normative. We see manifest right now in suddenly everybody's really concerned about whether or not drag queens are reading picture books to kids. Suddenly everybody's really concerned about whether or not the kid in your classroom wants to be known as Jane instead of Joshua anymore. Um, Suddenly everyone's really concerned about whether or not the teacher in the classroom has a photograph of her wife on her desk. And if she ever makes reference to wife being wife, right? And those are examples of, I think, the way in which we associate things that are similar to ourselves with safety. We do it with ideas. We do it with cultural practices. We do it with language. We do it with food, right? If you get enough removes away from whatever your sphere of normativeness looks like, people are bound to feel at least a little discomfort. And it's how people respond to that discomfort. If they decide that this discomfort is your fault, this is something you did to me. Or they say, huh, I am feeling discomfort here. Why? You know, and is is it actually a result of there being some kind of danger or threat? Or is it just that I have no experience with this and don't know what I'm looking at? And I think what we're seeing now in the sort of broad political movements um, against differing people's identities, differing people's bodily expressions, differing people's um, lifestyles, however you want to sort of frame them. It's more than lifestyles. It's an identity thing. What we're really seeing are people saying, there's this many degrees of difference between you and me, and that's your fault. And you did this to me. And I will not be safe until you come back here inside this box where I presume that you always started and that you had the temerity to leave. 
And so I, I think when we're talking about how fear of difference manifests, I mean, these alloys in, in Meru, um, they often don't look like people um, in the sense that we are accustomed to thinking of people, you know, especially the ones that are pilots and live out in space. You know, they're crazy looking space dragons or, you know, we've got big <laughs> moth sort of wings going on, um, but they have their own personhood and they are still in their base genes. There is a part of them that is homo sapiens. Right. And so I think there's a lot of things that that this book is dialoguing with, which are exciting to me because I think that they are related in more ways than we give credit for to other things going on around us. I think we're we're afraid of I think people who are afraid of drag queens are probably afraid of space dragons. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of uh, it's a kind of xenophobia, right? Fear of the thing that's that's strange and unknown and new. Yes. And not like me. Um, and mm-hmm. it would definitely be a process. I mean, I know for some people a thousand years doesn't sound that far in the future, but from a science fictional standpoint, I think it's far enough out to allow time for certain radical changes to happen. And if we think about life a thousand years ago, right? You mm-hmm. think about someone in the year, um, I, I need to say, I, I can't do arithmetic. <laughs> in the year 2525. Right. Thank you. This in would the, be 1023, <laughs> right? Yeah. 1023. Um, I've always been bad at arithmetic, which is really ironic Me for too. someone who likes, you know, advanced calculus, but <laughs> <laughs> I need a calculator to do subtraction. Um, so, yeah, take someone from the year 1023 and put them in the middle of your suburban street today. They'd and, yeah. you know, they look at you and they recognize you as a human being. But they look around them and it's like, what even is life, you know, mm-hmm. anymore, right? What are these things driving around? What? Are, how are there so many houses? Like, what is the surface I'm even standing on? You know, <laughs> yeah. asphalt or yeah. cement. Yeah. So, so I really wanted to kind of... Um, I wanted to embrace that and and be like, yeah, you know, a lot can happen in a thousand years where you could set foot into the world of Meru on Earth and at first be like, okay, there's other people here. And then you start seeing, you know, the alloys that live on Earth, right, that are um, tending to the Earth in various ways. And uh, they are highly genetically engineered and they don't look human at all. Um or you, you know, if you're from now, you see the absence of streets and skyscrapers. And and then if they get you out into space, it's just going to blow your mind. So, um, so I wanted to kind of, I wanted to make it really feel like you are a thousand, you have been transplanted a thousand years from now. And you're going to get used to it, but it's going to be, it's going to be pretty weird when you first get mm-hmm. there. <laughs> so we're going to... And, and the theme of transplanting ourselves to things, we're going to need to move to picks of the week soon. But I will say, I'm advising both for you, Divya, if you've never read it before, and for listeners, there is a completely wonderful Frederick Pohl short story called Day Million that if you Google it, I'm, I'm 100% sure you can find it out online. Um, but it's 
it, it is an old story. It's like about 70 years old at this point. It's been around for a minute. But it's surprisingly ahead of its time because it is it is a story about transhumanism um, and, and sort of a, a post-human world that takes the side of, of an SB Divya, as it were, um, mm-hmm. that sort of imagines it's telling the story. The first line of it is like, this is a story about a boy and a girl and falling in love. Um, but it, in many ways, it's not that, but it's still that. And mm-hmm. it's like a three-page story that is just ridiculous in how it um, beautifully and thoroughly takes us to task as readers for assuming that the standards of uh, by which we assemble our understanding of the world today are in any way meaningful to the people of the future, mm. that the people of the future wouldn't in fact look back upon us as sort of primitive barbarians. And that, well, of, of course, of course, you know, people are, are transgender in the future, says Frederick Pohl. Like, of course, people have multiple marriages that don't even involve direct intercourse. They involve like a sort of psychic imprint of one another. That's literally on a tape that you can play so that you can auto eroticize yourself and do that whenever you want, but you're still functionally married. You'll just never see this person again in your life, but whatevs. Um, Of course, the sexiest person, you know, has been genetically engineered to have fur and a tail and smells like peanut butter because that's what they wanted. Um, But it's awesome. It is a wonderful story that, you know, for for having been written almost 70 years ago, does surprising work in um, kind of anticipating this sort of thing. All right. So I mentioned Picks of the Week. Picks of the Week. Picks of the Week. Picks of the Week. Patrick, you want to lead us off? Sure. <clears throat> so this has been a this has been a deep conversation. So I'm gonna go with a, a, a deep movie kind of sorta. This I saw this on Netflix. It's called This Is Where I Leave You, and it's based on a book uh, by the same name, written by Jonathan Tropper, T R O P P E R Tropper, and uh, directed by Sean Levy. No relation to Eugene Levy. And at first I thought that was his son, but then his son's name is Dan. So I don't know why I always thought his son's name was Sean. Uh, but it stars uh, a lot of people. Jason Bateman, Tina Fey, Adam Driver, Jane Fonda, Rose Byrne. Uh, there's just like a huge cast to this. And Jane Fonda plays the mom. Uh, Jason Bateman, Tina Fey, Adam Driver, and another guy are all siblings. And uh, their dad dies. And uh, Jason Bateman's character, it's right in the beginning of the movie. Uh, his his wife turns out she's been cheating on him uh, with his boss for, for a while. And uh, then his dad dies. And his mom tells them that one of the things that it was like the last thing that their dad wanted was for them to set, sit Shiva, <laughs> which is seven days, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, in the house, not doing anything else, just being together. And they all fight against it, but they, they end up doing it. And so you've got the oldest brother who that's the actor. I didn't write his name down. Uh, and then Jason Bateman is the next. And then it's Tina Fey. And then Adam driver is the baby. And, uh, he is a pain in the ass, spoiled brat kind of douche. Uh, Tina Fey is, you know, the mom, she's got a couple of kids, but she's not in a happy marriage. Jason Bateman obviously is not in a happy marriage, but has no kids. And then the oldest brother is actually married 
to uh, a woman who dated Jason Bateman's character at some point, but then marry the older brother. And then they have no kids, but they're trying really, really hard. So lots of stuff going on. But it's this heartfelt kind of story about uh, these four siblings and their families and, and how they've all drifted apart and how, you know, sitting Shiva brings them all together and forces them to talk again and be siblings again and be a family again and uh, just kind of get their shit together. And it's a, it's a great movie. It, 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 it's a great movie. I, now I want to read the book because apparently the book is supposed to be fantastic, but it's uh, this is where I leave you. And it's currently on Netflix. Awesome. Thanks. I like that, Rack. How about you, Div? All right. I'm going to say Spy Family. Okay. Um, Fun. Since we were talking about (laughs) anime a little bit, um, this one's not shonen. It's written Spy X Family for anyone who wants to go look it up. We watch it on Crunchyroll. I don't know where else someone might find it online. But it is a Japanese animated show that has, I think, the most brilliant comedic premise that I have come across (laughs) in a very, very long time. And the setup is uh, the main character. He takes place in sort of an alternate reality 1940s pseudo-European world and um, the the main male character is is a spy who's kind of like embedded in Berlin and um, he's he's given a mission where uh, he needs to basically have a wife and a fake wife and child uh, in order to conduct some spy stuff not important. He ends up adopting a child who has been genetically altered to have telepathy. And he ends up fake marrying a woman who unbeknownst to him is an assassin for the Berlin side. And so, you know, the only one who knows Mr. And Mrs. Smith energy there. Yes. But the, the only one who knows the truth is the little girl telepathic kid <laughs> <laughs> who is like five years old. And so many, many awesome hijinks ensue. And um, it is really, it's brilliantly written. And everybody I know who's watched it of any age, except maybe the very young, um, seems to really love it. So highly recommend. Awesome. I uh, My son has a Crunchyroll subscription, so maybe I will make him show me. So. Oh, yeah. Such a good show. <laughs> okay um i am not doing a television or a book or a game wreck and so i'm i'm breaking out entirely um out of my your comfort wreck, zone yeah i know right <laughs> um so my wreck is uh, probably not likely to be repeated anytime soon because it's about me complicating my life uh yesterday evening we adopted um a little brother for um for our cat Hobbs. He is not little, actually. He's a gigantic hoss. He's like a 17-pound cat. Um, and uh, we adopted him from an organization called NAWS, which stands for the National Animal Welfare Society. They're based in Mokina, which is a southeast suburb of Chicago. It's kind of getting pretty close to the Indiana border there. Um, you, and they're you, a huge you, you, oh, oh, you don't have a dumb friends league? No, we don't, which is why I was so just... 
Yeah, no dumb friendly friendly. <laughs> we have gnaws instead. So I, I, things I, and you have dumb friends. Um, yeah, I got I got my dog from the Denver Dumb Friends League, and and Tracy has been just obsessed with that name. She's like, really? I just, That's I the name. I can't believe they call it that, and I love it so much. I mean, it's it's on the one hand like okay, but I'm also like, wow, like I understand that dumb in this context means something entirely different, but but wow. Like, yeah, I've <laughs> really I've. I've adopted two cats and one dog from there, so they're good people. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. You were telling us about Nas. No, totally fine. Uh, This is our first adoption with Nas, um, and they have been just absolutely wonderful. Um, Those of you who have adopted pets before are probably familiar with the fact that there's like two polar ends of the spectrum, right? There's the go to your local animal control, and they're like, look, we've got a bucket of, of animals pick an animal out of the bucket and give us, you know, whatever we say it costs to do that and then walk away. And then there's the other end that's like, we need four personal references, a blood test. We want to know your full working hours and your salary history. Um, And NAS is a great organization, in my opinion, in part because it's right there in between. It recognizes that There are questions you need to ask for people to know that they're going to be a responsible home for this pet. But also at a certain point, um, there are things that are not relevant and that really you want to focus on things that directly impact the welfare of the pet and the fit for the family. Um, The application process is totally reasonable. They were wonderful when we were visiting cats and getting to know them. Um, I am starting my spring break this particular week that we're recording. And so we paid for the adoption last week and we're able to wait until pick him up last night because now I can be home for onboarding our new critter into the, the household. Um, they have lots of benefits for the family after the point that you do the adoption, uh, including medical care and things. So if you are living in the Chicago area, uh, I strongly recommend and are thinking, of course, about having a pet. I strongly recommend checking out NAWS, the National Animal Welfare Society. Very cool. And as if on cue in the background, um, we have the the head shake and jingle from from Ronan. Oh, he he he's it's hilarious. He's he's a very aggressive chewer, mm-hmm. yeah. which I didn't realize that they that they had grades of chewers, but they apparently yeah, you need like do. titanium. And so I I always have a chew for him, and uh, I've been having a hard time getting the ones that that work fairly well for him because they're also really expensive. My God, these things are expensive. Uh, four of the jumbo ones cost like thirty bucks. You can and do the he goes through them route, so fast. but those are also crazy oh. expensive and may or may not be ethically sourced. So no, so I went I went to PetSmart yesterday and I got these. Uh, the ones I normally get are six inch. These were like 12 inch and there's two of them in a package. And I gave him one before we started and he had already finished it 10, 15 minutes into us recording. He had finished it and was like, what the fuck now? And so I gave him another one and he just finished that one too. So that one lasted longer, but my God, yeah, he's just, he, he doesn't even break. He just sits there rawr, 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 just chewing that stupid thing. So, yeah, sorry. Anyway, Divya. Yeah. Where can people find you online? Um, you where can, can they find your books? Me. Oh, well, the best place to find out about my books and me is on my website, sbdivya.com. Very easy to remember, hopefully. Um, you can also find me on various social medias. I'm on Mastodon these days as sbdivya. I'm on Instagram as sbdivya underscore author. And on Twitter as at divya's tweet. 
And how long is the contest going to go where people can uh, take a photo of, of your, your book that they have and potentially get one of those cards? Um, I have a lot of cards. And uh, so it's going to go till I run out. <laughs> Very right. cool. I, I'm sure I, the, the rate things are going at least another month. Okay. Fantastic. So if you're hearing this uh, around the time this episode comes out, it's not too late. Go find yourself a copy of Meru and uh, you can get some extremely gorgeous art to go with it. Definitely. And you know, if there is enough demand, I will order more art cards. Very cool. All right. Thanks so much for being with us, Divya. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. Always great to talk to you both. What on earth? Hey. Hey. Oh, oh. Hi, Patrick. Tracy, what are you doing to the bumper? Uh, fortifying it. Duh. This is because we just talked to Keith Amon about defending your lair. And... And I started thinking about that time beyond the trope, tried to take over. Yeah, I... I act cool about that, but I guess it kind of got to me after all. You do realize that building a... what? What is this? It's a palisade. Right. You realize that physical fortifications are not a way of protecting and preserving the podcast into the future, right? I suppose. Oh, oh, what about weapons? You're kidding. You have two Hugo Awards. Those trophies are very pointy and probably excellent for close quarters combat. Oh my God, you're not kidding. You can't tell me that you don't look at those trophies sometimes and think about how good it would feel to just poke them right into Sean Duke from Skiffy and Fanty, huh? Huh? My therapist says I need to give my worst impulses space to be entertained intellectually but not acted upon. I would totally act on that. But there's a problem. I don't have a Hugo Award trophy. I don't even have one of the tiny stabity nomination pins. Patrick. Patrick. Why are you grabbing me by the collar? Why am I narrating about it? This is audio entertainment, Patrick. Just give the cues. Patrick, I need that Hugo trophy to help you defend our layer. Podcast. But layer, podcast, whatever. We need to make sure the listeners know that nominating for the Hugo Awards is a great way to contribute to the SF community and honor content creators they like. Maybe even the functional nerds by nominating them for categories like Best Fan Cast. Please let me go. Oh, sorry. Would you feel better if we also told folks that interested listeners can go to the current Worldcon Facebook page for more information? I cannot actually pronounce that name of that current page, but they're in China. Oh, or they could skip straight to finding the Chengdu Worldcon on the web at en.chengduworldcon.com. You know, you're stronger than I thought you'd be. My neck hurts. <sighs> Walk it off, Hester. Here, here's a hammer. We've got work to do. Let's take a second to talk about Beyond the Trope. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, we recommend Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle have been putting out episodes for a really long time. Not as long as me, but don't hold that against them. They have a lot of great guests, just like we do. And they put out their episodes on Tuesdays, just like we do. 
They also have a Patreon with a bunch of extra content for backers, which is really cool. They have a Redbubble site where you can buy stuff, also cool. And I just wanted to throw it out there. Beyond the Trope, check them out. I think you'll like them. So there. Mr. Carpiers. You got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> When someone comes up to me and says, hey, I really love what you do. I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you know who I like? I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.